So over the last three weeks, we've examined how God draws near to us in the story of Advent, to humanity. But these moments, while they are rich with fulfilled prophecy and historical significance, they also serve as life-altering events for real people. 2,000 years ago, Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah, King Herod, some shepherds, the Magi, and a baby we'll see here in a minute. So this is a story of both the micro and the macro. And in some way, this is a story of the incarnation, this collision, this big and little. God, unfathomable in his power and glory, takes on skin and bones and sweat and becomes a little Jewish boy. Our story is a study of contrasts. And it's their story, and it's our story. And it is at least a contrast of social expectations. God doesn't work through who we would expect, or when, or where, or how. And so the contrasts really begin to pile up as we read this story. Both our expectations and those, I think, of devout first century Jewish believers are confounded by the events we're going to read about today. And perhaps that reveals how incredible and beautifully unpredictable God is. But I think it also shows maybe where our imaginations run dry. Last week in particular, we looked at the person of Mary. And honestly, that made me want to do like a 10-week series on Mary. I was so fascinated. I, I went down many rabbit holes on Mary. She's pregnant through a miracle of the Holy Spirit and about to give birth. But not just any birth, of course. She has willingly offered herself, literally her own body, to bridge the old and new covenants, to give birth to the promised Messiah. The first Adam was born of the dust of the ground by the Spirit of God, which we actually just sang about. I don't know if you saw the sons of earth. I don't know if you noticed, but that, that's, what, that's what this is talk, talking about, is that. Born of the dust of the ground. And the second Adam, Jesus, uh, the eternal word of God was formed by Mary and the Spirit in her womb, which is wild. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you can see how her body has become something like a temple of God's physical presence on earth. Her pregnancy and delivery define and foreshadow a seismic shift in how God will relate to his people and how they can draw near to him. And yet, she is still a person. She's Mary, a young woman who's excited, maybe a little nervous to give birth to her first child. She is a first-time mom. And the baby Jesus, still within her body, is about to be born in the most humble circumstances. So here's a question perhaps nobody has ever asked you before. Where do you expect to encounter splendor? So as is becoming a habit, I'm trying to use a word we don't often use just to sort of shake up our familiarity with the Christmas story. Splendor can mean like great brightness or brilliance, luster. And we'll see a lot of that in this story today. It can also mean something like grand and impressive beauty. And I think we'll see a little bit of that too. But I'm thinking more of a third, very similar meaning, which is more like great beauty or something that causes admiration and attention. So here's my definition of splendor for today, which is where beauty and brilliance evoke a response. 
So as we track the story of Advent, we find ourselves surprised over and over at where we find splendor. It is located in the most unconventional and unexpected places. Bethlehem, a feeding trough, a baby, shepherds, an unmarried couple traveling for the census, a barn, a cave of some sort. Where we look for splendor, I think, shows us perhaps where we expect it to be. Where we look for splendor shows us where we expect it to be, and it teaches maybe something about our own belief systems. There's so much that could be said about the Christmas story and has been said, but I want to pick up on a bit of a theme I touched on a few months ago, and one could call it the Christian imagination. We want to let Advent and the incarnation reform our imaginations. That was almost, that almost rhymed. We want it to reshape our expectations, oh, it's still happening, of where to look for splendor, of who to look for, for the brilliance and beauty I mentioned. And how do we define these things in the first place? So, like our story today, we're going to set this study up as a bit of a contrast in and of itself. Okay, so back in 2001, this is going to date me very quickly, there were rumors in the tech world of a revolutionary device that was going to change the world. And it got so intense that somehow these weird rumors even made their way up to a high school kid in Grand Forks, North Dakota, namely me. The reason I still remember this moment is because what I heard was that there were scientists that had invented an anti-gravity machine and that somehow a famous inventor from a company down near the Amazon River in South America was involved. This rumor privately threw me into like a little bit of an existential crisis for a few weeks. And you might ask why. And for me, it was because I thought of gravity as very closely to the way I think of God. The thought that one could somehow create a floating, personal, anti-gravity device like really messed my, with my senses of like what's possible. We're talking about like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. These were the kinds of people that were named in these rumors. People were saying it would be bigger than the internet. I'm not kidding. These were like bigger than the stuff that was going was nuts. I think there was even an episode of South Park about it. And these were like, so these are like aliens are real level rumors. And finally on December 3rd, 2001, they revealed the invention on ABC's Good Morning America. Here's what it was. It was the Segway. The anti-gravity machine ended up being the Segway invented by a man named Dean Kamen and the famous inventor with the secretive lab in the Amazon ended up being Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. Not at all what I expected. Now, while I was mostly dis you can you can get rid of Bezos there. While I was mostly disappointed that what was revealed was a silly personal scooter, there was a part of me that actually felt some relief. And that's because in some way, I felt like to lose my understanding of gravity would be to lose my very grip on how I perceive reality. What I feared, you could say, is a type of disenchantment. So sometimes I get the sense that this is kind of how people treat their relationship with God. They're just one anti-gravity machine away from the whole house of cards falling. And this is often because we set up our belief in gravity or in God too heavily in our own ability to comprehend it or predict it or maybe even control it. Our belief is in our expected outcomes, you could say. 
I do want to live in a world where someone could invent an anti-gravity machine and Jeff Bezos could ride it around in some khaki pants and I'd be excited and I wouldn't experience any disenchantment at all. And I want that for you too, actually, and for mall, crop, mall cops around the world, right? Um, the Israelites have experienced their fair share of disappointments and disenchantment. Thousands of years of waiting and pleading and hoping and praying serve as the backdrop to the Christmas story. Let's look at Micah 5, 2 through 4 in the Old Testament. It says, you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she is in labor bears, who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So against all odds, God draws out splendor from the ordinary and unexpected. We, could, we see the mention of Bethlehem, of course, but we also see that a ruler will come from a clan within a tribe of Judah that is insignificant in some way. And yet he will shepherd his flock in majesty and Israel will live securely because of its greatness. Okay, so there's a lot of good news in this passage, but we can't skip over sort of like the bad news sandwich we saw here, which was verse three. It says that Israel will be abandoned. We see how Israel will be left to itself, you could say, until this plan of salvation comes to fruition. For Micah and Israel, things will initially get worse before they get better. But they will get better. And don't take away the wrong message here. This is intentional in its inclusion. And its power to evoke and maybe provoke a response in us is, I think, a gift. God will come through, but not how we expect it. So what we're trying to do today is reframe our expectations from where to expect splendor. On the surface, Israel looks like it's in, generational, or in a generational spiral of misery and pilgrimage with no end. And no doubt it probably felt like that. When, O oh Lord, how long, they asked. But in the kingdom of God, we learn to expect God's presence in dark places. Instead of abandonment, we are about to unwrap a story of such intense beauty that we worship its author and celebrate him today. So this Christmas, where are you looking for splendor? Where do you expect to find beauty and brilliance that provoke or evoke? Where do you expect to encounter love? Okay, so before we head to Bethlehem, we have a quick pit stop to make in one of my favorite places, Canada. Uh, we have the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, who just turned 92 last month. He's still alive. He wrote a famous book in 2007 called A Secular Age. He thinks a lot about the experience of what I call disenchantment in the modern era. He's not pining for some world where people believe in woodland fairies or um, that they affect, somehow affect fertility or mermaids can cast a spell on you, not that kind of stuff. Instead, he says this, official Christianity 
has gone through what we can call an excarnation, a transfer out of embodied, that means like in our bodies, embodied and fleshed forms of religious life to those which are more in the head. In this, it follows in parallel with the Enlightenment and other modern unbelieving cultures in general. Okay, so recall that the birth of Christ is often called the incarnation. And Taylor is contrasting our modern, modern Christian culture as a form of excarnation. In a sense, he's saying what we've gone through is a giant un-Christmas, you could say. So just like in a week or two, you'll put away your Christmas decorations, maybe the little nativity scene in your living room, and then we do the same thing in our relationships with God. We box up Jesus and he becomes an idea or a set of beliefs or just like a vibe. He is relegated to the world of fairy tales or nostalgia. And not to be too hard on ourselves, let's not forget that God's people, the Israelites, were surrounded and often struggled with these tensions. After all, they lived in an era where um, superstition ruled the day. And so the concept even of monotheism was very radical. On the one hand, there was the temptation toward worshiping false gods or idolatry. On the other hand, in rejecting magic altogether, you could end up minimizing your expectations for God's divine activity or his revelation. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. You aren't expecting like, like a, a troll, a creature outside to meet you and curse you when you leave. But you have subtly stopped believing that God is real or that he's active or that he's not a creature in sort of the fairy tale way. So the wonder is gone. It has been replaced by in the head believism. Or maybe you saw Jeff Bezos writing a segue and it just ruined your imagination forever. But we have the German sociologist, a guy named Max Weber. Sorry, I didn't get a better picture of him, but there he is. He's looking good, I might add. Very good. Um, he was working around the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries, and he is the one that coined the term disenchantment, which I'm using today. And he would say the roots of so-called Western rationality, these are his words, are actually to be found in ancient Judaism, whose prophets helped disenchant the world by ridding it of many gods in favor of a universalizing conception of a transcendental, meaning not physical God. God who guided the Israelites toward morality and formal rules and commandments. So it sort of took God from being living in this box or somewhere in this stand, everything being almost like electric with God's presence and it moved it to a head knowledge, like the enlightenment. So this kind of feels like you're reading one of those choose your own adventure books and it's like a giant dead end, right? And I think that's kind of the point with God and the way the old to new covenant works. So is disenchantment a feature or a bug? I guess it's kind of both. And I think it's ultimately we want to think less about something like enchantment and more about love expressed through people, real bodies anyway. The goal isn't enchantment or disenchantment. I mentioned earlier that my definition of splendor is where beauty and brilliance evoke a response. And that, in some way, is what we see in the Christmas story. We see love animated. Oh, no. 
right, I'm going to do this. Hopefully everyone's okay. All right, Lord, I pray that little buddy is okay and everyone. Oh, that made me sad. All right, so we want splendor, of the splendor of Christmas to arrive as good news through the consumer-soaked numbness of our current moment. I knew what I was saying was boring, but sorry. So this story isn't presented by Amazon or Walmart. It isn't only for the elite or powerful. No, this story is radically egalitarian. It's confounding in its inclusivity. You can't buy tickets to it on Ticketmaster or gamble on it. No one owns the Christmas story. This one is for all of us. This one's for you. And this is really a story of how God's love evokes a response. All right, I'm going to take a break. I'm just going to help them for a second, and then we'll come back, okay? All right, so we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 2. And I think what's um, actually kind of wonderful about this is that you remind that baby Jesus is a child, right? We have bodies. All right, let's look at Luke 2. Starting in verse 1, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that had taken place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town together to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, or her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So I love that something so beautiful and historic came out of something as dull as like a government census, probably to determine tax rates. And this probably gives me like a little bit of motivation for January and February coming up here soon. And Joseph and Mary, they're in Bethlehem and they can't find a place to stay. And because of the census, the place is like bustling with travelers. So they end up with the animals. Can you imagine that scene? This isn't like a time of epidurals and IVs and heart monitors and scheduled inductions and Pitocin and I could go on, right? Because, you know, we have kids, so I've seen this. This was intense. And then Jesus arrives. He was crying and wriggling, you know, like baby stuff. And Mary wraps up Jesus in swaddling clothes. Jesus, the human, is holy and utterly dependent on this woman. He's now like in his cute little straight jacket with his arms tucked in and surviving on the milk of his mom. The God who knew this woman before the world's creation has submitted himself to the limits of his own humanity and the care of this young couple. So what does this story awaken in you as you hear it? What sticks out to you? And maybe why? God, in a twist of all twists, is humble and lowly. He invites Mary and Joseph to minister to him. 
God, the Father, doesn't shoot down like a list with all the babysitting tasks. They're given responsibility as parents. There's no magical scroll with Jesus like his preferred diaper brands or luxury strollers. God in his personhood entrusts himself to parents, first-time parents, betrothed yet unwed ones at that. Friends, this is a type of glory, you could say, a type of splendor, a beauty, and an, an, an how would I say it, an entirely unexpected version of love. A splendor is found in things like, you know, like a cold mountain waterfall or a cool breeze at an oceanside beach, which sounds very nice. And, but we expect beauty there. But Jesus arrives to the courage of Mary, which is beautiful. He arrives to the improvisation of Joseph, which is also beautiful. And next he arrives to the wonder of some blue collar workers on the night shift. Let's look at Luke 2, 8 through 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So these shepherds are up late watching their sheep, and an angel appears out of nowhere and scares them half to death. And they're sort of enveloped in some sort of physical manifestation of the glory of God. I'm not quite sure. Light, clouds, I don't know. But the angel reassures them and brings them good news. And of course, this isn't just any news. This is good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And I kind of like the Greek word right before joy is the word megas, which just means, um, it means great, but it's like, uh, you could say that it's mega gladness, perhaps. This good news will cause mega gladness for all the people. And at that time, these men would have understood that to represent Israel. So this is gospel, this is good news. But then things really crank up. The shepherds didn't grow up expecting God to send an angel to meet them in a field. And now they find themselves in the midst of like an almost alien encounter. And instead of wrath or judgment, they hear news of a savior who's coming and in fact has arrived. One who's merciful, who is loving, one who will shepherd his people, their people, one who will reveal them wonder. So the angel reveals this long-awaited good news to them, and then you kind of expect that to be the end of the story. But the gospel writer says this in verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest or in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. There's a multitude of angelic beings worshiping God and ascribing glory to him. This, too, is splendor. 
a moment where beauty and brilliance evoke a response. So the heavenly host responds with mega joy, and the shepherds respond, perhaps counterintuitively, after they're like scared out of their minds, by drawing near to God after witnessing the most terrifying and beautiful thing they've ever seen, probably. They decide to go toward it. They decide to go and visit Christ. So when the shepherds encounter glory and majesty, they are changed forever, and they leave their fields and travel to Bethlehem to meet Jesus themselves, to draw near. Verse 16, it says, So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as it had been told. So these ordinary men meet their Lord, still in a manger, in a feeding trough. We don't know, you know, whether these men, they might actually have been watching sheep that were used in the temple sacrifices. And now they're meeting the child who will grow up to be a shepherd of Israel himself that we read about in Micah, and who will later offer himself as the final temple sacrifice, namely the sacrificial lamb of God. The beautiful news of Christmas is that God, in his love, has drawn near to us. Isaiah 7.14 put it this way. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. That means Jesus is the savior of nurses and CEOs and the unemployed and electricians and stay-at-home moms and teachers and farmers and janitors and computer programmers and shepherds and you get the idea. And kids, Jesus loves you and he became a kid himself. Like he fell down some stairs probably. And I think it's really wonderful to remember that. Like Jesus became a child. Perhaps you found yourself disenchanted or discouraged or disappointed this Advent season. Don't be afraid to express your grief to God. Bring it to God in true lament. This is a normal part of life with God. But I want to reframe our expectations away from assuming that the things like God's presence or his blessing only come once we get things turned around in our lives or that we're happy or something else. I think this is to misunderstand the ingredients required for splendor. It's a sitting in the field watching sheep. It's filling out tax forms. It's the quiet hopes and dreams we secretly bring to God in our prayers and tears. We don't spend our days waiting for an angel to show up. In Christ, God accompanies us by his spirit in all that we do and he moves toward us in love. He walks with us. So where we look for splendor shows us where we expect it to be. And this teaches us something about our belief systems, like I said. And this Christmas, we answer sort of the Christian cultural excarnation, the boxed-up un-Christmases of our lives, with embodied responses like this, like gathering, 
and raising our voices in song and breaking of bread and sharing the cup of communion, time with family and friends, and reaching out to those who have needs or who are alone for the first time this season, spending time in intentional solitude and reflection and being generous with what we have. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are the church, the called out followers of Jesus who minister to God and bring Christ's hope and healing to each other in the world. So this Advent, we've been reminded of four things the last four weeks. Anticipation, which is that God's generosity and steadfastness free us from the impulse to produce a counterfeit control. Two, which is preparation. When we encounter God, we will be changed. Three, annunciation. In the kingdom of God, it is not by strength that one prevails. And for incarnation, Jesus reshapes our expectations for encountering glory. So, of course, this isn't the end of the story. In the coming weeks, we're going to mark Epiphany Tide, like I mentioned, which means we're going to examine how Jesus reveals himself. And I pray we keep our hearts open to the person of Christ and recognize that he is the living word of God, not ultimately just words on a page or on a screen. We're going to close with a word from someone who has shepherded me, you could say, over the years through his books, the late pastor Eugene Peterson. This is how he put it. The story of Jesus' birth has an immense progeny. Our planet fairly teems with stories and songs and paintings and drama that got their start from this story. The reproductive energies show no sign of tapering off. Writers and singers and artists, to say nothing of countless children and parents and grandparents all over the world, continue to find fresh and novel ways of keeping this story going. But even more impressive are the lives that continue to get a fresh start. A new birth in the story of this birth. Day after day, men and women who feel more dead than alive in the hearing or singing or seeing of this story, rediscover the utter and unspeakable and beautiful preciousness of life. The story of Jesus' birth gets reproduced in these human lives still over and over and over again. The birth of Jesus is a birth with a message. It takes the entire Bible to bring the complete message, but this birth is the core of it. If Jesus in Jesus, God is here to give us life, real life. Mm -hmm.